Well, folks, uh, we are very privileged to have uh, Professor David Block, the astronomer, with us today. We know he's a man who absolutely loves the Lord with all his heart. He spent his entire life researching the universe. He discovered Jesus at an early age and been serving the Lord faithfully. And so today he's going to come share with us on Chasing the Star and can we put a big hand together for Professor David Block. Welcome, sir. Shalom. It's awesome, awesome to be here this morning for round two. And I have to thank a number of people, Pastor John and Mandre, Cecilia, who's been feeding me crunchies so that I have enough sustenance to go for round two. Bruce, Pastor Bruce, we go back many years. I remember changing his diapers. <laughs> Not quite, but <laughs> we go back a long way. And um, today is a fascinating day because it's a subject cl so close to my heart and that is chasing the uh, Christmas star. For grand numbers of years, in fact decades, in fact millennia, the night skies have... Uh, captivated our attention. Astronomers throughout the ages essentially ask three questions. Why are we here? Where do we come from? And where are we going? I'll say that again because my students never get it right, and so 90% repeat the course. Why are we here? Where are we going to? And where do we come from? And these are questions that people around the world, men and women, boys and girls, continually ask themselves are questions of roots, questions of belonging, questions of why are we here, where are we going to, and indeed, alas, where do we come from? And so, right at the beginning, at the outset of this little talk, we must understand that it's firmly grasped within the uh, subset of roots. What's also interesting with a Christmas star is that the Magi said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And in front of me, you've got an NJB. Anyone know what that is? Never heard of an NJB? It's a nice Jewish boy. A while ago, quite a while ago, in fact, somebody said to me, they came up to me, they said, Professor Block, I'm Jewish. I said, yeah, prat nonsense. <laughs> they said, well, I'm Jewish, grafted into the, you know, grafted into the tree, grafted into the olive tree. But I am truly speaking to you as someone who's born Orthodox Jewish, and that makes it very special because the king of the Jews, it's his star I'm talking about today as a Messianic Jew, as someone who's born Orthodox Jewish, still doesn't eat pork to this day, <laughs> and who loves Jesus, as Pastor John has said. So you've got a Jewish boy loving the Jewish Messiah, speaking about the, the Christmas, the Jewish star. So if you want to get more Jewish than that, you need to ascend. <laughs> now, we have above our heads the Via Lactea, 
the way of the milk, the milky way. And it's wonderful, you know, beloved, in the cool of an evening, just to stand outside and to see the center of Sagittarius, towards Sagittarius, a star, and to behold the glory of the uh, galaxy in which we live, move and have our being, and that is the um, Via Lactea, the Milky Way. And it doesn't matter where you travel to. This one is in Australia. You still get that sense of awe and wonder and purpose standing under the canopy of the star, just being lost in awe and in wonder. But perhaps my favorite place to visit in terms of in our immediate subcontinent is here in Sausesplay. And I remember traveling down to Sausesplay and standing there amongst these trees and again seeing the grandeur of the, uh, the Milky Way. And so, bull, what, you, what you're looking at there is a million, million stars, 10 to the power 12 stars. And as I say, it doesn't matter where you go. Here we are, here folk in the Sahara Desert. And it's the same experience, the sense of just awe and wonder. Now, our Milky Way galaxy is not unique. There are billions of other galaxies. And the building blocks of our cosmos are galaxies. The building blocks of our cosmos are galaxies. And here you've got a galaxy known as Messier 83, or in technical terms, NGC 5236. But beautiful part of God's creation. And then we can come a slightly closer home. When I say slightly closer, light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second in vacuum. 300,000 kilometers per second in vacuum. And we're looking back 2 million years in time at this image. And so, again, you start securing just a wonderful glimpse of what the night skies have revealed since the time of the father of modern astronomy being uh, Galileo Galilei. And I'll unpack a little bit more a little later on. But galaxies come in vastly different shapes and sizes. Here you've got two galaxies, each containing a billion stars, a million, million stars each. And they colliding, you see baby stars being born, you see stars dying, you see lanes of dark cosmic dust. So in a very real sense, since 1976, I've ministered around the world on the fact that uh, the heavens declare the uh, glory of God, and they really do. But some of you might be interested in photography, and some of you might not. But I want to show you a picture which I took, which I'm very proud of, this one. That's a picture that I took. And the exposure time is three hours. The exposure time is three hours. The size of the negative well, let me show you. The size of the negative is, yeah, this is good. It's the size of this stand, yeah, this. It's the size of the negative. It's not just a digital camera. We, we talk about real photography. <laughs> we do things on a big scale, huh? So that's the size of the negative. And so I took this picture, very happy with it, and I thought of this, 
He calleth the stars by name. He healeth the broken in heart. Isn't that beautiful? The juxtaposition between the microcosm and the macrocosm. He calleth the stars by name. He healeth the broken in heart. And I want to tell you, and I'll share with you a little later, that there was a time in my life that I was so broken that I really didn't have any hope. There was no light at the end of the tunnel because there was no tunnel. <laughs> That's true. And I'll tell you about that little walk. But that's why I think I can minister to you in terms of that verse in Psalms. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. And I believe at this Christmas time that that's where God really can reside, in the brokenness of our spirits in the brokenness of our hearts. You know, in a week's time, I'll be in London and speaking there. He heals the broken in heart. You know, the God I know is in Latin, if you've practiced it, gloria in profundis Deo. It means, and God came down. Glory to God in the lowest, where there's no room for him in the inn. Jesus washed the dis Jesus. Washed the disciples' feet. He came down. He came down. We always think, God, you know, glory to God in us. And it's true. But God also comes down. And God comes down, beloved, to heal the broken in heart. He really does. He healeth the broken in heart. Like the woman sitting at the well with no hope. With no hope. He healeth the broken in heart. Come on. He healeth. He sitteth. He listeneth to the broken in heart. But he calleth the stars by name. It's the juxtaposition between the God of the beg and the God of Dave Block's heart. And you know, wherever I study, whenever I study the night skies, which is often, I look at this, the horse head nebula, cosmic dust shaped in the form of a horse's head. And again, there's a sense of awe and wonder. What goes through your mind, sir, as you see this image? Interesting. What goes through your head? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm a professor. <laughs> you get confused, so do my students. <laughs> it's amazing. I agree, it's amazing, it's awesome, it's grand, it's, it's beyond the news. It's beyond. And if you take a little close-up of that area, the horse head, it's an area in our skies in the constellation of Orion. But if you are following the news, you will have seen this image. And this image is called Pillars of Creation. It's beautiful. And it's writhing, seething columns of cosmic dust and it's actually called by astronomers, Pillars of Creation. And I just love the colors, right? The blue and the browns and the oranges. It just speaks forth of a God who's amazing in space and in time and then outside of time. Amen. I got one amen. And he has a little zoom in of that. Now... One of my favorite artists concerning the night sky is Van Gogh, not Gogh. You say, <laughs> you practice with a goggle. <laughs> you go like this, Gogh, <laughs> Van Gogh. The illiterate say Van Gogh. <laughs> Van Gogh. 
You've got to practice it. I have to be ready for London. Because <laughs> my fun. And he did fun. did the starry night, of course, which is beautiful. And so I decided to put them together in an image. Look. So if that doesn't excite you, thank you. I'm very proud of that image. It's in my book. There are not many left, but that's not a sales pitch. But um, I just thought, what can I do, John, to capture von Gogh's images with the night skies and, and the James Webb? God said to me, do this. And it was great fun to do it about two weeks ago, and then out came the book. But it's really fun. And God had said to me, the pillars of creation, of course, are cosmic dust. God said to me, I will give you the treasures of darkness. He said, I'll do that, eh? It's neat. Look, God says, I'll give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know the Lord, call you by name, and the God of Israel. Don't say Israel. You illiterate, you speak Hebrew. Israel, my name. You don't say, here's David Block. You say, here comes David Eliezer Block. <laughs> I know a lot about Jewish things, but that's because I'm born Jewish. So God gave me the treasures of darkness, and it's wonderful. But I suppose if you had to ask me, Dave, which message, which message from the Bible would you like to bring to people today? Uh, I'd say Psalm 8. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous. Your handmade sky jewelry. Isn't that precious? Your handmade sky jewelry. I mean, Stearns, I don't know if Stearns still exists or Browns or I don't know. But anyway, on a serious note, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. Then I look at my micro self, you see, and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why take a second look our way? And that's just me, you know, when I look at the James Webb Space Telescope, Cosmic dust again. Now, cosmic dust, beloved, the stuff is the material of which John and Bruce and everyone here is made, carbon-based stardust. But again, because I'm going overseas and I've got a, nearly a one and a half, two month speaking tour, I thought I must take something from South Africa that the world hasn't seen. That's what I thought I must do. You know, because people often ask, what is coming out of South Africa apart from Eskom? So, <laughs> so, I love Van Gogh, of course. And so I put together this, which is in one of my books outside. I love this one. And it's Van Gogh's uh, star, uh, no, Van Gogh, Starry Night, over the Rhone and the cosmic dust. I love this image. It says, I think I want to make one the size of my wall and just put it on at home. Don't you agree, John? It's just, it's, uh, it's lovely, isn't it, Omdur? It's beautiful. It's, uh, I mean, I could wake up at three in the morning and want to study astronomy. <laughs> I just get so excited like a little boy with toys when I see this image. I'm so proud of it and so happy. And it's going to be even shown in Hawaii. How's that? I'm preaching in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, God is amazing. He even takes me to Hawaii. There's something very interesting about Hawaii, actually. Um, many years ago, when I started my career, they said, where are you going to study? And I said, I want to st um, study in Hawaii. And uh, they declined my request for university leave. This is a true story, because I had put in their mind, they thought I was going to study heavenly bodies. 
which I was. <laughs> and so von, from von Hoch and so on, the birth of stars, and it just goes on, you know, wonder or beauty, if you look at this one unfolding before your eyes, it's just so unique and the cosmic dust. This is another image I took, a th three hour exposure of the Rosette Nebula in the constellation of Monoceros. And again, you've got all those chains of cosmic dust of which we are made. So these are really very, very close to um, my heart. And as I say, it's just the stuff of which you are made. And so the God of the big is the God of the small, right? The God of the macrocosm is the God of the microcosm, as I showed you with the reflections on the Rhone River and the starry skies above. And so, of course, if you read in Genesis, God makes mankind of the dust of the ground. That's cosmic dust. That's cosmic dust. And breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and men and women, boys and girls, become a living soul. And if you want to see that in the message, God formed man out of the dirt and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And that's the birth of our eldest son, Aaron, whom we'll be seeing next week, God willing. And Aaron is now 30 and married, happily married in um, Notting Hill in London. And Aaron there, I'm seen in theater, taking a picture of one of God's jewels made out of carbon-based stardust. And the story with carbon-based stardust goes on and on. But it occurred to me that the heavens declared the glory of God in a wonderful way. There was a man called Job who had lost everything. God allowed him to lose all his possessions, his cattle, his donkeys, every single possession he had. And I love this image because in this image, Barbona, you see he's still looking up in hope. If you look at his eyes, that's the most important thing to look at, um, are his eyes. Though they are filled with much pain and suffering, his eyes have the beautiful canopy of hope juxtaposed upon them. You really can see it very clearly in these images. Um, there's all the hope in the world, though he's suffering so, and he's lost all his worldly possessions, there's that ethos of um, hope, and that's what Abraham experienced too. All right, so, I told you that I came forth from with a broken heart, and that really dates back, it's a whole book I've written out, son, really dates back to my years at high school when I was so bullied at cadets, punched in my spine, that I couldn't sit. I was hospitalized, and I couldn't sit. Uh, I used to walk around in matric with an orthopedic cushion. But that's another story for another day. But I want you to notice what the Holocaust survivor uh, Dr. Edith Eager says about my book, my story. In the hell of bullying, hope flowers. I love that. In the hell of bullying, hope flowers. On the darkest of nights, the stars shine the brightest. He calleth the stars by name, such as the Pleiades. He, bind, he healeth the broken in heart. And so for the second part of the talk... We want to focus, now that we've got a nice foundation in astronomy, we want to focus our attention on the wise men. And there was some star which appeared in the sky and it caused them to move. The wise men set out on a journey of around two years, two years, most Christmas cards have got Jesus and the wise men and everyone mixed up together, as is traditional with artists who haven't studied the scriptures. But it's really, it's not true um, at all. Uh, if you read the Bible in Matthew 2, it's when the Magi 
met Jesus. He was a young child of about two years old. He, they entered the house, and of course, Herod the king ordered everyone male under the age of two to be murdered. So Jesus was around two years old. So the, when the Magi visited him, so in this image over here, it was a journey of around two years. Many of us don't want to undertake a journey for the Lord of a microsecond, right? We want everything on Google. There's no Google here, folks. This is really a journey of commitment and of dedication. It really does cost, you know, to follow the Lord. It really does, and it's good for us because it's fire sometimes that brings out the best in us. And so what did the Magi actually see? So from wearing my astronomer's hat, was it a comet? Was it a lineup of the planets? Was it a supernova or exploding star? Was it a miracle? And there'll be a pause while you think of that while I have a sip of my tizer. It's called the tradition of drinking the apple tizer. So what did the Magi see? I've delineated before you all the possibilities. The answer is we don't really know because the details in Matthew 2 are too fragmentary, but let's start with this. So that's a comet. I remember in 1969 seeing a comet, Comet Bennett. Bennett lived in Pretoria in, um, in uh, I think it was in Milan Street, somewhere around there. And anyway, this comet is called Hale-Bopp, and comets are beautiful, dirty snowballs of ice mixed with cosmic dust. The problem about the star of Bethlehem being this is, first and foremost, this would have been seen by Herod and everybody, and everybody. And, of course, it wasn't. The wise men go unto Herod and say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. So it was definitely not a comet um, for many different reasons, but first and foremost is it would have been seen by King Herod as well, and they wouldn't have needed them. The Magi followed something very special, which wasn't visible to the untrained eye. Now, talking about the trained and the untrained eye, there is something very interesting. When Jupiter and Saturn almost move together, and that's called a great conjunction. And here you can see Jupiter on the right, moving in closer and closer in projection to Saturn on the left, and they almost touch each other. It's not a physical touch, of course, but it's in projection. And, of course, it's been conjectured. Could the star of Bethlehem have been a line-up, if you like, of Jupiter with Saturn? Now, this was very seriously entertained by Johannes Kepler, a very famous astronomer, and in 1604, he noted that Jupiter and Saturn and Mars were all aligned in the um, constellation of Sagittarius. There was also a nova, or a new star, which had appeared there. But Kepler was very obsessed, in a sense, with the star of Bethlehem, and he did some calculations which showed that around 7 BC, um, there was a triple conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. And so that's one possibility, but again, there are many, many problems with suggesting that. These sort, the actual, this, the actual sort of kissing, it's not real kissing, but it's in projection like this of Jupiter and Saturn's very rare. The next one is going to be in the year 7541. So whoever's preaching that day at uh, this church in the year 7541 should preach about this, the conjunction. But if you saw this in the sky, you certainly, if you were an astronomer, you'd certainly go, wow, what's happening? 
And if you tie up the heavens and the earth, you know, what's happening? And uh, Kepler was convinced that this might have been, something like this might have been the star of Bethlehem. As I say, this kind of projection lineup is very rare. 7541 here. And the last one was 9,000 years ago in 6857 BC. But there was an apparent line up just around the time of um, Jesus being around two years old. Well, during that time span. Other astronomical possibilities are new stars. There are stars in our skies which suddenly appear. And uh, they're called cataclysmic variable stars. And uh, this is a new star. So imagine you're the Magi, and suddenly there's a new star. And you've got to be an astronomer to know it's a new star. But suddenly there's something like this appearing in the sky. Well, I'm sure you too would start saying to your friends, well, what is this? So there's a new star which has appeared in our skies. What is this? Could this signify the birth of a king? And in particular, if it's happening in the constellation of Aries, the king of the Jews. New stars or novae, exploding stars or supernovae. The problem with both of those interpretations is none of these are visible for periods of two years. They're visible for periods much less than two years. But here's an exploding star. A star has, a star has exploded and sent gas rushing out in all directions. Obviously, if an astronomer of the day had looked at it, they might have said, wow, something amazing is happening on the earth. But as I say, it doesn't quite fit Matthew 2, because that would not be visible for a period of two years. Yet we know that this happened. So, as I said in my first talk, what was the star of Bethlehem? I don't know. I really don't know. No astronomer knows. We can give forth possibilities like I've given you. Comets, lineup of the planets and so on. But nobody knows for sure. However, what I do want to say is that I would like to present to you with some fundamental thoughts regarding take-home lessons and the star of Bethlehem. So, first of all, how many of you would like to undertake a real calling by God in your lives? How many of you would like to undertake a real project for the Lord? All right, so three, some in the right place. I want to tell you something. If you want to be led by the Spirit of God, don't move until you see your star. Let me say it again, because my students fail my course. <laughs> if you want to undertake anything, small or big, for Jesus, don't act until the Spirit tells you to do so. You know, there was a time when the disciples said to Jesus, Lazarus is dying, he's dead, go. Jesus said, no, I'm staying right here. <laughs> At the wedding of Cana of Galilee, he says, my time has not yet come. It's very interesting with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. His disciples say, move, Lazarus is dead. Jesus said, no, I'm staying here. Jesus only did that which he heard his father do and say. People said, don't go to Samaria. But God said, go to Samaria, the woman at the well. So in the life of Jesus, on a day-to-day -day basis, Jesus never moved anywhere or to any city until the Spirit told him to do it. And if that's the case with our Lord, you better obey it yourselves. Don't do anything until God the Father says, go. I had all my plans lined up. 
to preach in Australia and New Zealand, and I had all invites and so on. And then COVID struck and everything. And so we were forced to stay. God's timing is precise, but don't act until his spirit urges you to move. Should you marry the person you're sitting next to or maybe thinking about while I'm preaching? Well, I don't know, but don't get married until the Lord says do it. I tell you, brother, I don't know if you're married or not, but don't get married <laughs> until the Lord says, that's the one. That's the one. No, not that one, that one. <laughs> don't get married until God says, do it. You know, there's a thing called Tinder today. And my students try and meet their friends and partners on Tinder. That's not quite the way the Lord works in my life. It's not quite. I know he can, of course. But what I'm saying is, respectfully, don't act until you see your star. The second point I'd like to leave with you today is this. You have to be led by the spirit of the living God. Always be led by the star. You must be led. You must follow the star. You must never be driven. You know, if you sit in a psychiatrist's waiting room, well, I haven't been sitting in a psychiatrist's waiting room, but if you sit in a doctor's room or if you just, our cousin, our one cousin is a cardiologist and he tells you about the stress people are going un undergoing. The reason is, People are being driven and not led. There's a big difference. Let me give you an example biblically of, we, of people or of animals driven. Jesus casts out the demons into the swine in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. When the demons enter the swine, the pigs, it's this it's frantic. The slope is downhill. We read, the pigs went down fast, down. The pigs went down fast, down. Mm -hmm. The slope with driven is it's always downhill. Should I buy this property? I don't know, but are you being led or are you being driven? Should I buy this new equipment? I don't know, but are you being led or are you being driven? And you'll know whether you're being led or whether you're being driven by the fruits. The fruits of being driven are threefold. The slope is downhill. And then, beloved, the speed is fast. Hmm? It's fast. There's franticness in it. There's angst, as Freud would say, in it. There's turmoil in it. Thanks so much, brother. I was feeling lonely. <laughs> and he said, it's good. There was no amens. Even the lonely said I looked lonely. <laughs> you know, brother, I also need an encouragement. I'm just a human being like you. I also need an amen here or there, or that's good, because it might be bad. <laughs> you know, people think I'm a professor. Well, I am. <laughs> people might think I'm a doctor. Well, I am. <laughs> but the point is, I also get lonely on the stage. Thank you, Bruce, and everyone else. I heard the claps. And so I've tried my best to put this together. I mean, I know it might be twak, but I'm trying my best. <laughs> I really am. I mean, <laughs> it's like Pavarotti trying to sing and the audience belong to F. Bob, you know. <laughs> the slope is downhill, beloved. The speed is fast when you're driven and the pigs drowned. And if you think of people who commit suicide over and over again, 
are caught in financial difficulties, for example, I'm not speaking about other things, but financially or others, it's often you get driven, the slope is fast, the speed is, speed is fast, the slope is downhill, the end is. Then finally, another little take-home lesson from the Star of Bethlehem, is that you've got to be in the right place at the right time. Now, I was born in Krugersdorp. In Krugersdorp, which is about, well, I suppose an hour, an hour and a half from here. And um, the Magi were in the right place at the right time. And there's nothing worse than catching a train and being in the right place at the wrong time. I'd hold my mummy's hand, I remember, as a young little boy in Courtbrook. They had Courtbrook those days, in Carlfoot. I don't know if they still have the foot or the call or whatever, but <laughs> the thing is that um, I used to hold my mama's hand and we waited for a train and she said, there's the train. Now you ask, where's the station? It's also gone. But <laughs> where's the train? You see, you can be at the right place, beloved, at the wrong time. And you miss your train. You're in the right place. God might have said, go to New York, but you haven't listened to his voice carefully enough, and then you're in the right place, and you're at the wrong time. There's no train. You must be, the Magi tell us, in the right place at the right time. And then the fourth take-home lesson is this. The evidence was only seen by the wise men, not by Herod. It was a journey of great patience, two years, two years, orchestrated by God, yes, and it led to great blessing. Now, I mean, God's grace is what keeps me going on a daily basis. His love, but His grace. And I've written books about that, His grace. The grace of God, this is interesting, is revealed in the Bible, the book of Scripture, and in astronomy, the book of nature. And so you've got his grace revealed, both in the macrocosm and in the microcosm. But you know, as I stand before you and I look up, I realize a truth, and the truth I realize is that not everybody has a glimpse clearly of God. Some people may be following the scriptures and so on, but I want to teach you an astronomy lesson about the sun. So there's the sun to scale the earth and the sun to scale. And here's our closest star to the earth, the sun and the earth. And if you look at the size scales, uh, structure, relationship, it would take 40 earths to cover the height of the flame on the sun, 40 earths. So the earth, very small. If you can't understand anything else, just say to your neighbor, the earth is by a claim. <laughs> just big claims, minute. Just a pinky, it's minute. And the moon's even much smaller than the earth. The moon's just money. But I want to tell you something about the moon. The moon can come between the earth and the sun. And does anyone here, or here, or here, does anyone know happens, what happens when a tiny piece of rock, the moon, comes between the earth and the sun? What happens? There's an eclipse, and this is what happens. And you know, people say to me, Prof, I can't see the sun. It's disappeared. The sun's gone. It's disappeared. I don't believe there's a sun anymore. It's gone. And I say to you, it's gone because it's in eclipse mode. And you know what you know why you can't see the sun or why I can't if I'm in the state? Is because, listen to me, 
There's this tiny stone of sin in your life, and it eclipses the sun. Can you believe that, brother? Now, I want to give you an experiment, because I'm a professor, so I'm allowed to. How tall are you, sir? Okay, so, and sir, how big are you compared to your socks? <laughs> big, right? You're a nice, strong, strapping guy. Your socks are minuscule. Now, look at this experiment. Here are socks. These are my socks. But it's for an experiment. John's gone. Pastor John's gone. Just a tiny sock. The moon eclipses the sun. You're gone, ma'am. You're gone. Sir, you're gone. You're gone. All my glasses. You're gone. And God said to me very clearly, David, there are socks or there are stones in people's lives, and they're eclipsing the risen Savior. They're eclipsing the risen Savior. They are eclipsing him who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of our faith. And so God said to me, tell the people this morning before you fly, a heart of stone can eclipse God. God said to me, tell the people this morning that he promises to give you a new heart in Ezekiel 36 and put a new spirit within you. He will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And you know... That's what God wants to do, and I'll be praying for that now. But God wants you to prosper as follows, 3 John 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. But you have to get rid of the stone in the shoe. You know, when Jesus, lay, I just thought of this, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what were his first words to the disciples? What were his first words to the, just before he raised Lazarus from the dead? What were his first words? Take ye away the stone. Yeah, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus says, no, I'm not doing nothing. You take away the stone. Because it's in your power to do that. You take away the stone. And once his disciples come and move the stone and do what they can humanly do, Jesus comes along and says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, being the, the creator of the world, he could have so easily just said, stone, be moved, and so forth. But he says, now, listen, folks. There's a stone between the miracle. There's a stone. And it's obstructing me speaking, Lazarus, come forth. And so Jesus says to his disciples, folk, take away the stone. <laughs> and once they moved and took away the stone, God did the impossible and raised Lazarus from the dead. And so I've often thought about growing up in Krugersdorp. I've often thought about our footsteps. And I want to... Let's tell you about a little verse. Jesus comes to give light to them who sit in darkness, ne? and in the shadow of death, he wants to guide our feet in the way of peace. But one of my greatest friends was one of Afrikaans' greatest legends, the late Kiatia Kluter, winner of the Herzog Prize. There wasn't a person in, in South Africa who was more highly regarded in Afrikaans poetry than Kiatia Kluter. And I was his friend, and he sent, there was a poem he sends me. It was a poem. Evat planeta kaats en melk weer versit, wat is meer laats vir u, wat is seer punky lit 
voor die almachtige mag, I wat lachjaren meet en in eeuwigheid onthou, I moet toch ook weet van mij en met mij rekening hou, I is toch ook op mij bedag. And for those of you who don't understand it, it says God is continually thinking about me or this I am on God's mind. That's what that means. I never knew that as a young Jewish boy that I was on the Creator's mind. I never knew when I fasted on Yom Kippur that I was on the Master's mind. I never knew when I celebrated the Feast of Rosh Hashanah that I was on God's mind. I never knew, I never knew that one day I would encounter him who says I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of my faith. I never knew, I never knew. But the eternal truth is God is constantly thinking about me. It's been a message of hope. It's been a message of joy. It's been a message of love. It's been a message of the Magi moving along. It's been a message of the Magi moving along. It's been a message of the Magi following and not being driven, but being led by the power of the risen Christ, as it were. Father, we thank you so much for your glory. We thank you so much for the awesomeness of the messages, which teach us so much. Oh, Father, minister by your Spirit, Lord, as I believe you are, Lord, from seat to seat, chair to chair. Thank you for the eternal truths that at Christmas time, God became man and tabernacled amongst us. Oh, Father, heal the broken in heart. Oh, Lord, bind up their wounds. Oh, Lord, set the captive free. And Lord, you've just reminded me, Lord, if there be any stones today eclipsing the sun, that you might confess your sin and be free in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a story of hope. Amen. Come on, won't you give the professor a real hand? Don't leave right now. We thank you. We honor you for being with us, Professor David Block.